Chapter Seven of Forest Days by G. P. R. James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seven. Upon the edge of the merry forest land, on the side nearest to Derbyshire, not far from the little river Lind, and surrounded at that time by woods which joined the district on to Sherwood itself, there rose, in the days I speak of, a Norman castle of considerable extent. It had been built in the time of William Rufus, had been twice attacked in the turbulent reign of Stephen, had been partly dismantled by order of Henry the Second, and had been restored under the dominion of the weak tyrant John. Being not far from Nottingham, it was frequently visited by noble and royal personages, and was often the scene of the splendid and ostentatious hospitality of the old baronage of England. It has now crumbled down, indeed, and departed. The ploughshare has passed over most of its walls, and the voice of song and merriment is heard in it no more. The lower part of one of the square flanking towers, in the outer wall, is all that remains of the once magnificent castle of Lindwell, and a dingley copse, where many a whirring pheasant rises before the sportsman, now covers the hall and the lady's bower. In the days of which I speak, however, it was in its greatest splendour, having come into the possession of the Earl of Ashby by his father's marriage, and being the favourite dwelling of the race. It was situated upon a gentle eminence, and the great gate commanded a view over some sixty or seventy acres of meadowland, lying between the castle and the nearest point of the wood, and for the distance of nearly three miles on the Sherwood side, though there was no cultivated land, except indeed a few detached fields here and there the ground assumed more the aspect of a wild chase than a forest with the thick trees grouping together to the extent of an acre or two and then leaving wide spaces between as pasture for the deer and other wild animals only broken by bushes and hawthorns this district was properly within the limits of sherwood but as all persons know who are acquainted with the forest laws certain individuals frequently possessed private woods in the royal forest which was the case of the earl of ashby in his manor of lindwell and whether or not he had originally any legal right of chase therein such a privilege had been secured to the manor in the reign of john by the king's special grant and permission his rights of vert and venison then as they were called extended over a wide distance around and it was reported that some disputes had arisen between himself and his sovereign whether he had not extended the exercise of those rights somewhat beyond their legitimate bounds in the same merry month of may however of which we have just been writing and but one day after the occurrences took place which have just occupied our attention a gay party issued forth from the gates of the castle and took its way in the direction of nottingham we have called it gay and it was so altogether gay in colouring, gay in movement, gay in feeling. At the head of it appeared three light-hearted young women, a lady and her two maids, all about the same age, and none of them having as yet numbered twenty years. Their clothing was rich and glittering, and they were followed by a page possessing all the requisite qualities for his office in saucy boldness and light self-confidence. Three or four yeomen came next, who, having been left behind while their lord went with numerous attendants upon a distant progress, had necessarily had all the love and the merriment of the lower hall to themselves. 
The horses which bore the whole party were fresh, proud, and spirited, and never, perhaps, was more brightness of appearance and heart embodied in one group than in that which took its way down from the castle gate and through the meadows below. But we must pause for a moment upon the fair leader of the cavalcade, for she is worth a short description. The earl's daughter, Lucy de Ashby, wanted yet a few months of that period when girlhood may be said to end and womanhood begin, where the teens, which are so longingly looked for by the child, come to their end, and the third ten of the allotted seven begins. Oh, how long do the five tens that are to follow appear, when viewed from the brow of the hill of youth, and yet the two that are gone contain the brightest and sweetest part of our apportioned time. Lucy looked not older than her years, for she was small and delicately formed, but yet there was a fullness of womanhood in every line. Her face had not much colour, and yet it was not pale, but the whole hue was warm and healthy, and fairer than that of the southern nations of Europe, though still evidently the complexion of what is now called a brunette. The brow, the nose, the lips, the chin were all beautifully cut, though the model was not Greek, for the forehead was wider and higher, and there was a slight, a very slight, wave in the line between the brow and the nose. The eyebrows were dark, small, and long, slightly depressed in the middle over the eye, but by no means either arched or strongly defined, according to the eastern notions of beauty, but, on the contrary, shaded softly off, so as to only show a definite line to beholders, when at a little distance. The eyes beneath them were large and long, but with the deep black eyelashes which she had derived from her mother, shading them so completely that the sparkling of the dark iris was only clearly seen when she looked up. That, however, was often the case, for in her gay liveliness, when she had said some little thing to tease or to surprise, she would still raise the fringed curtain of her eye to mark the effect it produced, and to have her smile at anything like astonishment that appeared upon the countenance of those who heard her. The lip, too, was full of playfulness, for indeed sorrow had but sat there once, and tears were very unfrequent in those dark, bright eyes. There had been people seen, perhaps, more beautiful in mere feature, but few more beautiful in expression, and certainly none ever more captivating in grace of movement and in variety of countenance. Her dress was full of gay and shining colours, and yet so well assorted, so harmonious in their contrast, that the effect could not be called gaudy. The same was not the case with her two women, who, with the pleasant familiarity of those times, were chattering lightly to their mistress as they rode along, upon the ordinary subject of women's thoughts in all ages. Alas, I mean, dress. There was, on the contrary, a good deal of gaudiness about their apparel, and their taste did not appear to be that of the most refined kind. "'Nay, dear lady,' said one of them, "'I would have put on the robe of arms when I was going to Nottingham to wait for my father.' "'It does look so magnificent, with the escutcheon of pretense for Menorca, just on your breast, the silver field on one side, and the azure field on the other, and the beautiful wyverns all in gold.' "'I cannot bear it, silly girl,' replied the lady, "'to hear you talk about wearing the fields. "'One would suppose that I was a piece of arable land. 
"'And as to coats of arms, Judith, I like not this new custom. "'Women have nothing to do with coats of arms. "'I put it on once to please my brother, "'but I will never wear it again, "'so he may cut the skirt off "'and use it himself next time he goes to a tournament.' "'Dear now, lady, how you jest,' replied the girl. "'He could never get it on. "'Why, Lord Alured's thigh is thicker than your waist.' "'and I do declare I think it much handsomer "'than that azure and gold you are so fond of. "'I would not wear that at all events.' "'And pray why not?' demanded Lucy de Ashby, with some surprise. "'They are the two colours that divide the universe, girl. "'Azure the colour for heaven, gold the only colour for this earth. "'So between the two I should have all mankind on my side. "'Why would you not wear them?' "'Because they are the colours of the Mothimers.' "'replied the girl, and they are old enemies of your house. "'But they are friends now,' rejoined Lucy, "'into whose cheek, to say truth, the blood had come up somewhat warmly. "'She ventured to say nothing more for a minute or two, "'and when she did speak again, changed the subject. "'The conversation soon resumed its liveliness, however, "'and thus they rode on, talking of many things and laughing gaily as they talked, while the yeomen who were behind amused themselves in the same manner. After about half a mile's ride, they approached nearer to the banks of the little stream, which, being every here and there decorated with bushes and tall trees that hung over the water, was sometimes seen glancing through a meadow, and then again lost amongst the thick foliage. Just as they were entering a closer part of the woodland and leaving the stream on their right, one of the yeomen exclaimed, by blank using an oath of too blasphemous a kind to be even written down in the present age but which in those days would have been uttered in the court of the king by blank there is somebody netting the stream quick jacob quick come after them you bill go round the wood and catch them on the other side see they're running that way they're running that way and setting spurs to their horses the whole of lucy's male attendants with the exception of the page "'galloped off as fast as ever they could, "'shouting and whooping as if they had been in pursuit "'of some beast of the chase. "'Lucy de Ashby paused for a moment and called to the page, "'who was the last to leave her, not to go. "'But the spur had been already given to his horse, "'and the boy became seized with a sudden deafness, "'which prevented him from hearing a word that the lady uttered. "'Lucy gazed after them with a thoughtful look for an instant, "'then laughed and said, "'Tis a droll fancy that men have to run after everything that flies them.' "'Aye, and dogs as well as men,' added one of the girls. "'And women as well as both,' answered Lucy. "'I have more than three-quarters of a mind to go myself. "'But I will not, girls, and so, to be out of the way of temptation, we will ride slowly on.' Thus saying, she shook her rein, and keeping her horse to a walk, "'followed the road before her into the thicker part of the wood, "'leaving her truant attendants to come after as they might. "'In about a quarter of an hour the first of the men appeared at the spot where they had left her, "'but he was by no means in the same plight as when he last stood there. "'His clothes were dripping, as well as his hair. "'There were the marks of severe blows on his face. "'His smart apparel was soiled and torn, and he was both disarmed and on foot. "'In short,' He looked very much like a man who had been heartily beaten and dragged through a horse-pond. A loud hello, which reached his ear from the direction of the stream, seemed to visit him 
with no very pleasant sensations, for he darted in at once amongst the bushes, and hid himself as well as he could for a few minutes. At length, however, two of his comrades appeared, but they seemed to have fared not much better than himself, for although they had preserved their horses, both were in terrible disarray, and had returned from the fray evidently with broken heads. "'Where is Bill?' said one of the other as they came up. "'I saw him running this way.' "'Poor devil, he got it,' replied his comrade. "'And you got it too, I think,' cried the one who had first appeared, now coming out from amongst the bushes. "'Why, I never saw or heard anything like that blow off the staff across your shoulders, Jacob. You echoed like an empty cask under a cooper's hammer.' "'Aye, Bill,' said the man to whom he spoke, "'and when the man bestowed upon you the buffet in the eye "'and knocked you down, what a squelch was there! "'Why, it was for all the world as when the scullion, "'bringing in the kitchen dinner, "'let the apple pudding fall and it burst itself upon the pavement.' "'I will be even with him,' said the man called Bill. "'But where's the page and Walter?' "'They galloped off to the castle as they could,' "'answered the third, and your horse along with them, "'so you must go back too, "'and we must ride after the lady as fast as we can go.' "'Pretty figures you are to follow her into Nottingham,' rejoined Bill. "'And what will my lord say when he finds "'that we four and the page were beaten by five men on foot?' "'There were more than five, replied the other. "'I am sure.' "'I thought I saw some in the bushes,' added the third. "'Come, come,' exclaimed Bill. "'There were only five. "'I was disabled by being knocked into the river, "'otherwise I would have shown them a different affair.' "'I dare say you would have done wonders,' "'answered the other with a sneer. "'But we must get on, "'so you go back to the castle as fast as you can.' "'Prithee see me beyond those trees,' "'said the yeoman on foot. "'If those fellows are hiding there, "'they may murder me.' "'We have no time, we have no time,' "'replied one of the horsemen. "'Go along with you.' "'If you hadn't been in the stream, you would have thrashed them all, "'so thrash them now, good Bill.' "'And thus saying, the two rode on, "'for certainly there is no human infirmity, "'though it is a very contagious one, "'which meets with such little sympathy as fear. "'Onward, then, they went at a quick pace, "'hoping to catch up their young mistress "'before she reached Nottingham, "'but feeling a little ashamed for having left her at all, "'and not a little ashamed of the result of their expedition.' When they had gone about a couple of miles, however, without seeing anything of Lucy de Ashby, the one looked round to his comrade and said, "'It is odd. We haven't come up with her. She must have ridden fast.' "'Oh, it is just like her,' replied the other. "'She has galloped on just to tease us and punish us a little for having left her in the wood. I would wager a besant that she does not draw a rein till she gets to Nottingham.' "'Aye, but the best of it is,' rejoined his companion, "'that we shall hear no more of it than just, "'Jacob, you should not have quitted me. "'You should have let the stream take care of itself, "'instead of twenty great blustering oaths "'such as Lord Allured would have given us. "'Then it will be all fair weather again in a minute.' Ay, she is very kind,' said the other yeoman, "'and when anything does go wrong, "'she knows that one did not do it on purpose.' "'With such conversation, and with praises of their sweet lady,' which one may be sure were well deserved, as no ear was there to hear, no tongue to report them, the yeoman rode on. But the one called Jacob did so, it must be confessed, 
uneasily. His eyes, as he went, were bent down upon the ground, which in that part was soft, searching for the traces of horses' feet, but though he gazed eagerly, he could perceive none till, at length, they reached the gates of Nottingham, and entering the city proceeded at once to what was called the lodging of the Lord Ashby. It was, in fact, a large, though low-built house, shut from the street by a courtyard and a high embattled wall. The gates were open, and all the bustle and activity were apparent about the doors, which attended in those days the arrival of a large retinue. There were servants hurrying hither and thither, horse-boys and grooms slackening girths and taking off saddles, servers and pantlers unpacking baskets and bags, and boys and beggars looking on. "'What, is my lord arrived?' cried one of the men who had followed Lucy, springing from his horse. "'We did not expect him till to-night, or to-morrow morning.' "'He will be here in half an hour,' replied the horse-boy, to whom he addressed himself. "'We rode on before.' "'What tidings of my young lady?' said a server, walking up. "'We thought we should find her here to meet the earl.' "'Is she not arrived?' cried the yeoman, who had remained on horseback, in a tone of dismay. "'She came on before us. We fancied she was here.' The one who had dismounted sprang into the saddle again, exclaiming, "'This is some infernal plot.' The story was soon told, and the whole household of the Lord of Ashby, or at least such a part of it as was then in Nottingham, was thrown into a state of confusion indescribable. In the midst of this, some ten or twelve men mounted their horses, though every beast was tired with a long day's journey, and set out to seek for the fair lady who was missing, beating the forest paths in every direction. But not the slightest trace of her could they find, and, after a two-hours' search, were coming home again when, having made a round on the Southwell side, they met the party of the Earl himself riding slowly on towards Nottingham. He was accompanied by only four or five attendants, but had with him his son Alurid and Hugh de Mothema, the other Earl having remained behind at Pontefract to settle some business of importance there. It may be easily conceived what indignation and surprise the tidings brought by the servants spread amongst the party they thus met. Lord Alurid chafed like an angry tiger, and the old lord vowed every kind of vengeance. Hugh de Mothama's lip quivered, but all he said was, "'This is horrible indeed, my lord, that your lordship's daughter cannot ride from Lindwell to Nottingham in safety. What can we do?' "'We!' cried Alurid to Ashby. "'You of Mothama, you have little enough to do with it, methinks. What I shall do will be to cut off the ears of the scoundrels that left their lady on any account.' when they were following her to Nottingham. "'My lord of Ashby,' said Hugh de Muthma, addressing the earl, "'I merely used the word we, because, as a gentleman and your friend, I take as deep an interest in the affair as any one. I and my men are at your command to seek for this lady instantly, and we will strive to do you as good service in the search as the best of your own people, if you will permit us.' "'Certainly, certainly, my good lord,' replied the earl, "'Allared, you are rash and intemperate. Three hours ago, they say, this happened. Should they have taken to the forest, they cannot have gone very far. If they have followed the horse-paths, and were one of us to go back to the second road to the left, where there stands a mere, he must, by beating up those lanes, either come upon the party themselves or find the horses, if they had turned them loose, 
and taken to the footways. "'They have not gone into the forest,' cried Allurid de Ashby. "'Depend upon it. "'These are some of the king's people, or the bishops. "'Better far let us scour the more open country along the banks of the Trent. "'You will soon hear at the bridges whether such persons have passed that way.' "'Stand out, Jacob,' said the earl. "'You were one of the fools that were misled. "'What like were these men who lured you from your lady?' "'I think they were men-at-arms disguised,' answered the servant in a sorrowful and timid tone, "'for so well practised were they at their weapons "'that they beat us all in the twinkling of an eye. "'Besides, when I struck one of them, "'I heard something clatter underneath, like armour. "'The net, too, did not look like a real net.' "'It is very clear the whole was a trick,' said the earl. "'I doubt not you are right, Allurid, "'but still we had better spread out "'and scour the whole country across. "'You, with part of the men, take the banks of the Trent. "'I, with others, will skirt the borders of the forest "'from Nottingham to Lindwell, "'and our young friend here, with his own two servants, "'and two of ours, will perhaps examine the forest itself "'from the second turning on the road to Southwell.' as far as he may judge it likely from the time which has elapsed, that these gentry could have advanced. I will send people to meet him when I reach Lindwell, who will tell him what success we have had, and give him aid and assistance. Allurid de Ashby seemed not over well pleased at the arrangement, for his brows still continued heavy, his cheek flushed, and his proud lip quivering. But he made no objection, and after a few words more, the party separated upon the different tracks they proposed to follow, having still three or four hours of daylight before them. Allurid rode on, with his fiery temper chafing at the insult which had been offered to his family, and but the more irritable and impatient because he had no one on whom to vent his anger. His father pursued his course more slowly, and with very different thoughts. Wrath in the bosom of the sun swallowed up every sensation but the loss of a child, which he had treated but lightly in the case of the innkeeper, now filled the earl's breast with deep anxiety and apprehension, though certainly poor Greenley had more cause for agonising fear and sorrow than the proud noble. It is a curious fact, however, and one which gives a strange indication of the lawless state of the times, that no one imagined the absence of Lucy de Ashby could proceed from any ordinary accident. End of chapter 7